All right, welcome to the History Brothers Podcast. I'm Andrew Roth. And I'm Wyatt. And today we're going to be talking about World War I. Now, first we're going to be discussing one major note we got to let you know. World War I, like all the other wars, is so complex and so vast that we will not be covering everything today. But we will at least cover some main points and hopefully continue to discuss this further down the road alongside of like a part two session maybe with bringing a friend of ours or another a professor or anything that can discuss further about the war. Until then, we're first going to be talking about some major points. I'll be discussing about the build-up to the war, as well as a few major points that discuss further detail about what took place during the war through, poss- through a book example and through other things. And I'll also be talking about Woodrow Wilson and, and the influence that happened in the war as well. And why, what were you going to be discussing about today? I will be discussing um, two uh, figures that were important to World War One. Uh, George M. Cohen and Alvin York. Perfect. And then afterwards, we will conclude by discussing a fun intake about the comparison to actual historical intake of World War One, and based on a, and the accuracy and inaccuracies of a certain movie that just came out called The King's Man. All right. So the first we'll be talking about will be the build to the war. Now picture this: it's 1900, and things have been expanding in many numerous ways. For America as well as many other countries in the world. One, there were three different things though as tensions were being built alongside each country in ways that people couldn't even imagine. The first was the multiple alliances that were made. Now once a long time ago George Washington once mentioned about keeping neutrality alongside other countries and that was always a serious matter to be imparted upon. But a lot of people didn't follow that suit and as a result many countries had by the time established a lot of, a lot of alliances toward other countries, almost kind of like an intertwined maze. Like, say, for example, you pull on one string, the rest of it falls apart. And alongside that, there was also, with tensions being high, alongside political, political stances as well as different outtakes on different countries, there are a lot of building up of armaments, a lot of adding up of military and weapons and many numerous, I would say, just advancements to get ready in case the threat of war ever happened. And alongside, yes, they're true, there were a lot of, there were a few minor wars that grew alongside the 1900s, followed by even a few revolutions, such as 19, the Russian Revolution of 1905. But there was just, there were small conflicts compared to what other countries were dealing with. Now, one of the other big aspects that was being built upon with the tensions, another third main point of it all, was the source of nationalism. Now, there's a difference between, what's the word I'm looking for, Wyatt? Um, between nationalism and... Uh, um, <clears throat> imperialism? Nope, no, no, not imperialism. I'm uh, uh, not loyalty either. It's, um, oh gosh, I know this word. It's the difference between them. Um, oh gosh, nationalism and... Uh, uh, well, regardless of the word, if why if you find it, please let me know. Mm-hmm. But also, if anybody knows the word in the comments, please let me know. Um, basically, the de- it's a difference between nationalism and um, I would just say for right now, loyalty to one's country. Nationalism is very much a definition of we are the best country in the world. We can fight all of you to the death and all that jazz. Basically, demanding that they are the better country and that they will do they will willingly do things that are very violent and very dangerous in order to protect their country, but also in order to prove that their country is the best. 
The opposite of that, loyalty to one's country is having the respect and commitment to what the country is, what they lie for, and what they stand for. Having loyalty to what it is that makes their country great. Such as we as Americans who have respect for our country, for the freedoms that we have, as well as for what follows suit and everything else. And also, it involves willingly to sacrifice their own person to willingly sacrifice their own life for one's country in a war that could, in order to defend that country that they want to live for. Now, in but also in less violent, not that was the word I'm looking for. I'm losing my words today. <laughs> violent, less violent, violent intakes compared to what other people like say for like bombing something or doing other things in the name of one's country. So basically, that was basically what they were dealing with because a lot of countries were dealing with all these nationalistic intakes. Now, for a long time, it was kind of like a fuse being lit waiting to explode. And it took a very long time. But then one fateful day in, I believe, 1914, right? Yeah, I believe 1914. Yeah. Yeah, 1914 when it started. Was when it took place in... Um, um, my gosh. Oh my gosh, my words today. Um, when, and I apologize people who are listening. It's just been a, been a while, I guess, but for, um, the countries, uh, there's two countries near Germany and Russia and involved that were very Serbia, Serbia. Yes. Thank you. No, no, not Serbia. No, 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 no. Not Serbia. Austria. Austria. Nope. Not Austria. Um, and yeah, oh, gosh, it was just, they were very much net. Ne- hostile to each other very much in a way that was severe and basically what happened in that was eventually a group a terrorist group of sorts uh, i think they called themselves if i remember correctly the black hand if i remember correctly they were playing in order to prove themselves a better country but also to prove that they didn't need their leader who was archduke francis ferdinand they were going to kill him their the terroristic plan took place like this there are three people and each person was going to detonate a bomb. If the first person failed, the second person was going to do it next. If the second person failed, the third person was going to do it next. Well, the first person, he threw the bomb, and it failed. Drastically failed. The second one was caught in a heartbeat by the soldiers. The third person decided that there was no way that he could ever be able to kill off the Archduke and his wife. And he decided to get away. Well, ironically, he while he was sitting in a cafe, uh, the car literally drove by because after the Fra- Archduke Francis Ferdinand and his wife escaped, he and his wife were pulled to a stop to take a breather from their escape. And he literally had the opportunity and the assassin of the group killed the, Fran- the Archduke and his wife as well as the child that the wife was bearing. And as a result... War was declared among the countries. One thing, Russia declared war in defense of the one country, and England declared war, and Germany declared war in relation to the other. And because of all the treaties and alliances each country had, from England to France to Italy, they all declared war alongside all the other countries. And what resulted in was World War One. Now, with this war, there was very much eh, a lot of casualties, and though a lot of people look into the disaster and the tragedy that was World War Two, there was very much a lot of tragedy and disaster that befell in World War One. Numerous lands in, in various countries were decimated by trench warfare and numerous 
what violence from guns to poisonous gas, which was first invented during this war with mustard gas and with everything else, it caused much strife and turmoil and very much a lot of pain and suffering. One example I can give that detailed, really good examination of trench warfare, especially during the time, was based on an actual book that was written um, from an author who actually knew the experiences of the trench warfare called All Quiet on the Western Front. Shout out to Dr. Miller for having me read that book in his class. Um, This book detailed about one German soldier's life while serving in the war and serving in trench warfare. It details in gruesome uh, gruesome examples about some people's suffering, those who lost limbs, those who would walk, who would still even walk looking for their arm, trying to attach it back on or trying to, some people trying to keep their own guts and everything inside them from falling out and other people suffering from what mustard gas did to them, basically decimating their faces and mangling them in many ways. Dealing with the struggles of living in trenches with the rain, the storms, dealing with what little, minimum food they had, dealing with the winters they had, even like going to basically getting rid of the humanity of what they grew up with. And it basically detailed even like how when a fellow soldier died, they're like, I'll take his boots, I'll take his coat. When they were that desperate to try to get something for just to keep themselves warm at night. And another thing too is that the author was able to detail relatively well was whenever they went out, ever got a chance to t- take a vacation of sorts, kind of kind of like um, when they were on leave for a time but during the war. One, one example is when they showed the soldier living, um, going back home. Sorry, excuse that, I forgot to turn my phone on vibrate. Um, basically, they showed how he was suffering from PTSD in a way before he even was even recognized. And they showed in a vivid detail about how life is like in Germany or in the town he lived in while dealing with the war itself. And even they even show the struggles of losing friends, losing loved ones they grew up with, losing people and basically sometimes being affected by it, but not, or even just because of the war, not even being affected by it at all. Another detail as well as like showing the wants of what they can get from food to water to something to drink, even just alcohol or even just let's just say being with a woman and they show it shows all of the the eagerness of what they want as well as being able to detail the struggles they face and it is very much a very well written book and very shows a good provides an excellent example to what the war was and i highly recommend it because it gives a vivid detail of what it was and alongside that as alongside germany which i would love to research further of what they were going through alongside that there was also so much other strife going on in other countries and other details. The one country I'm going to discuss right now is the U.S. Kind of just to set the stage for what they were dealing with during this war before, before going with further detail on what Europe was down the road, which will be for a future podcast, of course. But for America, they were in a state of neutrality at the time. Woodrow Wilson didn't want to go to war. He was very concerned about all that was happening with that, and especially since there was dealing with more other serious issues. Specifically, there was even multiple revolutions in Mexico at the time, from a dictator being overthrown to a Democratic leader being in there, and then suddenly being assassinated by getting overtaken over by another dictator. And Woodrow Wilson was dealing with all these things, and eventually he just ordered a state of neutrality for everything else, trying to make sure that war, and that they will not join war and everything, so they can just keep the peace of what they were dealing with. However, war had other plans. And as a result, with everything else, um, hold on a minute. Actually, 
I knew it. It was Austria-Hungary. I knew that was the country. Sorry, um, Francis Ferdinand was and Serbia. It was Serbia, Why You were correct. Yeah. Serbia and Austria-Hungary were the two nations at conflict. Those that that started this whole war in the first I place. I forgot Austria-Hungary were one nation out at that time. Yeah, and that's why I thought, and I, and I knew that was the country in my head, but I had doubts about it. But apologies about that. But yes, no. So with that, new with Wilson, he wanted to make sure America stayed out of the war, and he tried his best to do it, but. Eventually, Germany declared declared uh, that any ship going near British British shores or British water will be shot down, and they were serious about it. When around 1916, the the steamship the Lusitania got sunk by a U by a German U boat, uh, early version of the submarine, and with that, um, the Americans' public perspective began to change in a way that was leaning less toward peaceful times and more toward how dare they do this, we need to go to war. Wilson was even willing to switch it around, possibly. It was getting closer and closer to that possibility. And one thing was that eventually, they Wilson then discovered one other, other thing that he wanted to, that basically sparked the, the de- declaration that he wanted to go to war. And that was known as the... Um, Gosh, Zimmerman note. Zimmerman note. My words are just not failing today, audience. I am terribly sorry. I have no idea why my mind's drawing blanks right now. You mean they are failing? You said not failing. Oh, my words help me now. It's been a it's been a Monday Tuesday. What can I expect? Yeah. But the the Zimmerman note was basically a letter written by Germany to send immediately to Mexico, detailing the possibility that if Mexico joined in the war to revolutionize against America to go against them, they would be able to gain extra land from America once the war was over. Now, once the note was made public, Americans were furious. They were angered and just ready to set ablaze anything that could happen against Germany. And so, eventually, Wilson decided to declare war on on, on Germany, as well as joining in the war. And as a result, they had the better focus of what the, the, war, the Allies needed in order to win the war against the against the central powers. Now, which is ironic since this is, took place after the Russian Revolution occurred and Russia withdrew from the war itself. And, but America gave the added push, which added more arms, more added depth to the forces they needed, and more soldiers to come and fight and then put down Germany to finish this war once and for all. Now, the other thing I should have liked to note as well is I found out originally as well before Wilson declared war, before the note and everything happened, he didn't want to add, include weaponry to the to the merchant ships to include in order to protect themselves against German forces in case they were ever attacked. Now, he tried to, he made sure to go through the House of Representatives in Congress, and ironically, the House of Representatives said yes, but Congress said no. And You mean the Senate? The Senate, yes. Thank you. Um, and basically with that, they were, because apparently there was a lot of peace-loving people in the Senate, and they did not want to go to war. They literally did a filibuster to stop them from f- pushing this vote further in. And eventually, though, Wilson was able to go over that and was able to get the armaments prepared for merchant ships. But beyond that, though, it, just, it was very fascinating. And also, shout out to the book I got the research from, Onto a Good Land. Thank you, Dr. Dan Hartuck, for making us look at this book. It's awesome. And no, it's just there's so many other details with that. And with that added value, it was able to end the war. And America was able to gain a 
more prominent point with this afterwards, especially since Wilson tried to was one of the representatives in the in the treaty at the end. The treaty. Let's see what was the treaty called by it? The treaty, treaty of Versailles. Versailles. Thank you. And basically that. It just it evolved into something greater and better. And, well, more or less. The, the very terms and conditions were not necessarily the best in the world. And Wilson even tried to create the League of Nations, which was kind of an early version of the United Nations. And everyone was all for it. Everyone was all waiting for it, except for America. They did not want to be into alliance with all these countries. And most of the conditions went against Germany itself. So it kind of left Germany in a bitter resentment for a lot of things. And it basically set up all that was to come for World War II. This is just a basic overview. We will definitely be going over more countries down the road here with another episode. But I'm going to turn it over to Wyatt now. He has more details on some more in-depth looks of all the things. So, Wyatt, go right ahead. So I'm going to talk about George M. Cohen, who is an American composer and dramatist. He was born July 3rd, 1878 in Providence, Rhode Island, and died on November 5th, 1942, in New York City, New York. He was um, an actor, popular songwriter, playwright, and producer, especially of musical comedies, and he became famous as the Yankee Doodle Dandy, which is which is actually um, the biographical film that was named after him. It was called Yankee Doodle Dandy, after his nickname. Um, the reason he's important for this discussion is because he wrote the song over there which was a world war one song about um getting a it was essentially a patriotic song about uh encouraging the soldiers to go over there europe um what was funny is my junior high history teacher said well they called it over there because there's no nothing that rhymes with europe and i'm like i i i guess i don't know i don't know why I just thought that was funny because I'm like, well, yeah, there's not really anything that rhymes with Europe. So over there is kind of vague, but, <laughs> you know, it worked. It was a very popular and patriotic song. Also, he is known for the other song, um, Grand Old Flag, a patriotic song about the U.S. flag, which was actually made in 1906 for a musical called George Washington Jr., so I think actually Grand Old Flag came first and then over there came second based on um what happened. Yeah, I'm trying to see. Yeah, I think over there was published a lot closer to World War One, And it's funny because um, in the film and spoilers, not that you're going to really see the film, but um, spoilers for the ending of the film. There is a he was walking with a bunch of soldiers who were marching to the song over there. And um, one of the soldiers asked asked him, "Do you know the song?" Is like, and his simple answer was, "Yeah." And it, and the soldier just kept walking forward, and it was just it was such a good moment because it's like he's the guy who wrote the song. <laughs> yeah, so Cohen is responsible for two of our most like what you might consider our patriotic songs over there, and actually I should look up the over there lyrics just so you get. What it's over. Uh, Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me, every son of liberty. Hurry right away. No delay, go today. Make your daddy glad to, ha to have had such a lad. Tell your sweetheart not to pine, to be proud her boy's in line. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. 
that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drums rum tumming everywhere. So prepare, say a prayer, send the word, send the word to beware. We'll be over, we're coming over, and it won't come back till it's over, over there. You're missing the lyrics, man. You gotta sing it out. <laughs> no, I'm not singing it. It's a good song, though. It's very, oh, yeah. ca- it's very catchy and very clever. And it can get stuck in your head. <laughs> it, it does, but it, it's, got a, it's got a nice tune. Oh, it, yeah. It's one song I, I don't mind getting stuck in my head. Right. There are other songs, though, that I've heard that are... They're not, like, real songs. They're just, you know, parodies. Right. Uh, those are the nightmare to get stuck in your head. Oh, yes, very much so. Yeah. And now one is trying to get stuck in my head right now, and I can't let it. No, please don't. You please will not win. No! <laughs> and also, the other important figure I want to talk about is a man by the name of Alvin York, also known as Sergeant York. He was born December 13th, 1887 in Pall Mall, Tennessee, and died in, in 1964 in Nashville, Tennessee. Celebrated American hero of World War One, immortalized by the film version of his life story, Sergeant York, which came out in 1941. And I gotta say, there is a not as many World War One films compared to World War Two. I mean, we had the most recent, the most glorious, beautiful film of all time, 1917. Yep. Um, which is my favorite film of all time, in case you didn't catch my bias. <laughs> but um, yeah. And uh, apparently he started out as a blacksmith in Tennessee. He lived in Cumberland. Uh, he he didn't want to go to war in World War One because he didn't want to kill people. He didn't want to kill anyone. He thought it was... Uh, wrong even for the purpose he thought it was wrong to go to war and he was and they actually wrestle with this in the film uh he he's concerned about going to war because he believes it's against christianity to um kill someone and i like how in the film that his uh his the men in charge of him in the military understand that and they ask him to think about it Mm-hmm. And he does, and he eventually decides to go. However, in I th- and I, I think that was a more fictionalized version of it, maybe because right. in reality he pleaded like to be a conscious, conscientious objector, but that status of his was denied, and he was drafted into the army. He served in the eighty second Infantry Division at the Meuse Argonne Offensive in October of nineteen eighteen. He was among a patrol of 17 men ordered to take out a German machine gun emplacement that was checking his regiment's advance. Behind enemy lines, the patrol lost half its men, but managed to take a handful of prisoners before it was pinned down by extremely heavy rifle and machine gun fire. Corporal York assumed command, and while the rest of the survivors took up defensive positions and stood guard over the prisoners, York attacked alone and, firing rapidly and with deadly accuracy at the enemy gunners, killed more than two dozen of them which prompted the others to surrender. En route back to the American lines, he captured still more Germans to a total of 132. Mm-hmm. And did he not, like, did he not, like, kill a single soldier? No, he did. Oh, he did. Oh. Yeah, it just said he killed two dozen of them. Sorry, I misread that. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, York was promoted to the rank of sergeant and later received the Congressional Medal of Honor and similar honors from France and other countries. Oh. Nice. So other countries are, like... Thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> After the war, he returned to Tennessee, where he lived on a farm given him by the given to him by the state, and helped establish an industrial institute and a Bible school for the education of r- rural youth. His autobiography—I did not know he had one—Sergeant York, his own life story and war diary, edited by T. 
Scahill appeared in 1928. So if you're interested in reading more about Sergeant York, you have his autobiography, Sergeant York, his own life story and war diary. I'll definitely need to check that out because that would be really interesting. Right. Yeah, so he was given the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was basically a revered war hero. And, yeah, I I wanted to talk about him because it's easy to gloss over... Uh, it's easy to gloss over significant figures. Also, interesting, something I want to bring up as a... Uh, something I wanted to bring up for the purpose... Apologies for that interruption and quietness. My, uh, or Andrew had to move his car because it was right behind my, the spot where my dad's truck was parked in our garage. So, excuse the brief interruption. I was, uh, what was I talking about? Uh, Sergeant York, um, World War Two, the book. There's an autobiography. World War One. World War One. Every day, I swear, this is just an off day for me, people. I apologize. It's all good. <laughs> Besides, we're probably going to discuss the more war and politically ra- related stuff in another episode with someone alongside us. Oh, yeah. Because I think, kind of like with the, our War of 1812 episode, because, I mean, we can't cover the whole war in just no. one episode. We will definitely be doing that. I try to get in touch with some of our history majors, or even a professor we used to know. That would be great, too. Yeah. So I was talking about Alvin York, and um, I was talking about how often with wars it's easy to skip over unique individuals like this, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I learned from a, another historical documentary. Um, you ever heard of The World Wars? The World Wars? Never heard. No, I don't think so. Okay. Let me look it up quick. Another good a- example of a good um, documentary of sorts to watch would be um, They Shall Never Grow Old. That one I've yet to watch. I've oh, watched yeah, that was, um, that was done by Peter Jackson. He just took World War One film and he colorized it and edited it so that it could fit on the big screen. Um, the World Wars basically details um, are the most significant leaders from of our military and political history from World War One to World War Two. So you get Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin. Yep. Um, Lenin. Lenin, although... He know, died in the Depression, but he was still a part of the... Because of the revolution. Right. Uh, Len- Lenin. Uh, Hideki Tojo, military leader for Japan. Hitler. Hitler. Uh, FDR. Mm-hmm. Uh, Woodrow Wilson. Yep. So, all those... Uh, George S. Patton. Uh, Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur. Yeah, it's funny. Um, actually, the part of the reason we got tanks is because of George S. Patton. Apparently, he uh, of course he commissioned that, or he argued that the U.S. needs to. He saw a whole new way of warfare when he first saw the tanks um, that were employed in World War One by the British. They were actually originally called land ships. Nice. Yeah, and they they definitely weren't the best uh, weaponry at the time. I mean, again, it was the early development of the tank. Um, I th- they weren't v- they they could easily get stuck in the mud. I believe. Um, I don't think their weaponry was the best, at least compared to World War Two tanks. World War Two tanks were something else. Yeah, those things were <laughs> scary. Yeah. Yeah. Let me look up World War One tanks because. Yeah, these are. These things are. Not 
Let's see. Yeah, they were not in the best shapes. Think of like, mm, how would I describe it? Honestly, a land boat is basically how I would describe it. Oh yeah, now now I'm thinking of the image. Um, think so. You you gotta no no just use the bathroom. Quick. Oh okay. Sorry guys, apologies. Oh, Andrew says to use the bathroom. <laughs> Anyways, um, essentially the land the. Pfft, the World War One tank was, or the land boat. Think of the sand crawler from Star Wars on the planet Tatooine. For those of you who are familiar with Star Wars, think of that, but a lot smaller and basically the height of a six foot human. Yeah, they were not that impressive, at least from our standpoint. At least from our standpoint, they were not that impressive. Sorry, Andrew's having to get the dog out of the room so they don't disturb us. So this is just a podcast where you can hear everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, so essentially what I just said was um, uh, the World War One tanks think of like the Jawa sand crawler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the height of a hu- six-foot human. Yeah. So, so, that, so they weren't very big. They weren't very impressive. Well, I guess, I mean, they were big, but they weren't very impressive. They probably had one or two men in them, whereas... World War World War Two tanks. If you've ever seen the movie Fury, they could have up to like seven or eight guys in there at once, right. manning the tank, which is actually really cool. Right. So yeah, World War One tanks not too impressive, not very versatile, but um, George S. Patton found a way to make them work for the U.S. military, and he even and he commanded them on the front field, and he actually while doing so ran into MacArthur, who was commandeering his own uh, group of troops. Not tanks, just regular yeah. troops. Regular infantry. And honestly, just watching the film with... Obviously, they over-dramatize a little. Douglas <laughs> MacArthur just walking in the field. Uh, bullets flying everywhere. His men ducking, and he's just walking like he's some sort of giant <laughs> of war. And it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but apparently, though, George S. Penn, Douglas MacArthur, they met on the battlefield. And at that time, MacArthur was about the age of 38. So he was a younger middle-aged man. He had some military experience, or he was gaining more military experience. His father had actually fought in the Civil War. So his, like a lot of families in the U.S., a lot of them come from a military background. And right. Some of them take it more take it more deeply than others, and Douglas MacArthur was one of those men. Also, George S. Patton had a really interesting view of himself. I forget what it was. I mean, he was aristocratic, so he kind of had a wealthier lifestyle back home. But right, that wasn't which is weird to think because that's he's the gritty, dirty type. He's yeah. not very blunt. <laughs> he's very blunt. He is not the one who you think would be an aristocrat. Right. Uh, he's. There's, I think the weird thing about him was that he believed he was a reincarnation of a great hero or war, or warlord. I, I honestly don't know. I would have to look look that up. It would... It, he just had a something to do with a reincarnation about himself that was weird. Or yeah. he thought, 
all these great military leaders were reincarnated into him. So oh, that's weird. Basically, you could say <laughs> their their minds or whatever. Yeah, you could basically say he had a high view of himself. Yeah. So yeah. Oh gosh. He was also not a, even though he was a significant leader in World War Two, he was not a favorite just because of how blunt he was and how willing he was to put um, some of his men in danger or in harm's way. So he, there are times where he got promoted and times where he got demoted. I mean, but that's World War Two. We're talking about World War One. Yeah. Um, that's honestly all I have for World War One. The last honestly great comment I could have before we move on to our third point of this of the podcast, honestly, is that World War One, though World War Two is hugely significant. But what people also don't realize about World War One sometimes is that this war literally changed the course of everything that we ever knew. They ever knew about culture and life and literally the the aristocracy, aristocracy, aristocracy. That's how you pronounce it. Yeah, it literally just slowly started to fade away after that. Yeah, and like the lordship and everything else. They just they though they still existed. They slowly started to die away a little bit. And the transition of the cultures, especially the tw- roaring twenties and everything, and the thirties, yeah. they all started just to change everything around the world. Right, because the economy be. The economy, the middle class of the economy grew, so it be, so the gap between very rich and very poor, like just, became so, so small. Yeah. Because of how, economies change. I mean, uh, Henry Ford's invention of the, uh, what was it? It was it wasn't the car. He didn't invent the car. That's a common misunderstanding of him. He invented a car, but <laughs> he he made a car and made cars. Uh, a regular commodity for everyone to buy. Um, the what did Henry Ford invent? It was not for sure, actually. Henry Henry Ford. It was the assembly line. The assembly. Oh line. yes, 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 yes. He invented the assembly line, which basically just changed how um, how companies built their products in a more efficient and fast manner, so they could get them out to the out to their. Uh, uh, out to consumers quicker, which is a big reason why the Roaring Twenties came to be, is because Henry Ford's invention of the assembly line, mm-hmm. which then makes me think of Henry Ford the Second and Ford versus Ferrari. But we're not going to go yeah. into that. Yeah. Again, all these like I love how in our day we're just seeing so many different parts of history come to life. Yeah, and within individuals you never hear about or yeah. just rarely hear about, right? No, that's why World War One needs to be hugely covered. Which surprisingly, they've been being covered a lot in movies as of late, from history to fiction yeah. and stuff. Which like is very... the, the movie nineteen seventeen and the one and the other movie directed by Peter Jackson called They Shall Not Grow Old. Yep. Yep. And yeah, no, that actually is a good sliding point to our topic. Um, the recent this past year, there's been a new movie that came to theaters called The King's Man. And if you guys are familiar with the franchise, it's a spy film series and everything. This movie is about the origins of the agency and also the details of how it was set up, which took place during World War One. Now, there's two ways you can look at this movie. Look at some of the aspects they actually respect and honor, and also laugh your head off at all the inaccuracies that take place in this film. Um, the film uh, itself, as I mentioned, covers World War One and covers a very vast, basically the whole war in a, in a mere two, hour, two hours and 15 minutes. But alongside it, it involves a lot of espionage and everything else. Now, to start off with, we could talk about the accuracies about it. The accuracies, they do a really good job of depicting the war. And the visuals, 
and everything, the filmography and everything were quite fantastic. It's not, it's not, of course, to the same uh, extension that uh, nineteen seventeen no, does. But never. But no. when I, but when I saw those portions of the King's Band, the the war portions, I'm like, I just had you know, it just made me think of nineteen seventeen. Like it was very similar quality. Yeah, and then just they made the sets and everything were very well done. The costumes were well designed. And they even introduced an aspect that I've obviously I need to research further to see if it was actually true. Like there's one scene where they show um, some soldiers going across the lines to try to save a, a spy for them who got some important information, but they came up against some German spies, and uh, they they all agreed they need to put their in order to fight they had to put their guns down and to fight hand to hand combat because yeah. otherwise they would have all been shot on both sides by Germans and British. So it, it was interesting to look at that aspect to see that actually happened. I did to research it myself, but yeah, but no, the war they do a very good job of depicting what the war was, and the the everything from the trench warfare to everything was just very well made. Right, I think what's super funny is that there is this whole secret organization trying to or secret group trying to influence the war, so Britain lost, and or that the Allies lost, and trying to get Russia out of the war. And one of the agents to get Russia out of the war was none other than Rasputin. Yes. So that was his role. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It, Rasputin is is always one of those mysterious persons in history that like he he had a a lot of people didn't like his influence on the royal family and they grew more untrusting and concerned with the royal family's rule because yeah. they brought because they brought in Rasputin. Yeah. Apparently, how he influenced them, according to the movie was opioids, drugs. Yeah, and basically like, pretending to be a holy man. Which, again, in, in history, it is depicted that he was he was actually acting like a holy man. A monk. Yeah, a monk, thank you. Okay. But, um, well, uh, holy man, yeah. Yeah, I mean, holy man, yeah. Thing. But it just, um, but in this, but the thing is, is just like, people always came up with these things like, oh, he seduced the, the queen, or oh, he did all these other stupid stuff. He was, or the classic of all classics, the movie Anastasia, he was a sorcerer. <laughs> and... Yeah, uh, there. so there's all these different... So because Rasputin is a more... Um, uh, he's a more, like, shadowy figure with history, it's easy to fictionalize him in ways that are super weird, and the Kingsman uh, does that again, too. In a very interesting and terrifying way. Yeah, it's not terrifying as in scary. It's just so Un- weird. And uncomfortable. And uncomfortable. But it's um but it was just it was really hilarious just to watch that. And like the other thing too is the organization, they're the they're the ones who created this war. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently it was led by a Scotsman. Yeah. And which I think why it was not a fan of. <laughs> I'm like, I don't give a bloody heck about your politics. Just get Russia out of the war. <laughs> Then they had like agents. And he was talking to Lennon when he said that. Yeah, like Lennon was another agent, and like, no, they had all these hilarious tidbits about all this, and especially with the Russian Revolution and how they're basically setting up the war. The one thing they did get good good at, though, one comment I thought was really acceptable because I know a lot of historians agree with this. Again, with the Treaty of Versailles, like how the organization was formed by the end of the movie, like the guy literally said, "I feel like the ter- the terms of the treaty are very much." shall we say, uh, like, extraneous or very nonchalant. So we must be prepared in case something arises. And honestly, that was, like, honestly, like, some of the most reasonable people in that time, even though they were fictionalized. Yeah. <laughs> because the treaty did not do anything. Yeah, the Treaty of Versailles was, it was very poor. It was basically, it. the war is Germany's fault, and they're going to pay all the penalties for the war, even though it wasn't necessarily started by them, and it wasn't their fault directly. Yeah. So... 
It, th- there was just a huge bias against Germany at that time. Yeah, there was. Which was which Adolf Hitler was not a huge fan of. No. And of course, the uh, spoilers for the end cut scene. They teased Hitler joining the organization at the end. Yeah. And no, they didn't. And they had all these other big figures and stuff like that. Like they even had a another fictionalized part that was really hilarious is they blackmailed Woodrow Wilson with uh with uh <laughs> interesting video. With with yeah. Him having an affair or whatever. Yeah, because the organization sent a mistress for him to try and seduce him to stay yeah. part of the war. Yeah. And uh like so the that's whole... what happened in the White House. Yes. No. And basically all the basis of the movie was like trying to get America into the war, which is hilarious, honestly. Yeah. But no, and the other, but the two main, the other criticism I would say, which is, which was interesting, was um, was how the assassination of Fran- Archduke Francis Ferdinand and his wife, because again, for according to history books, they 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 just after they escaped from the bombers, they were driving around until they stopped at the cafe, right. and they finally, and that's when the the princep, that was the assassin's name, got his chance to kill the pr- right. Archduke and his wife. But it was, it was the same guy in the movie versus, in reality, it was a different person. Actually, no, it was the same guy. Prince but, was the assassinator. Was but the I thought you said there were three. Yes, there were three people. It was a different... It was... But they, they got rid of the first two guys and right. made Prince the sole person in the, in the assassination right. attempts. Which, and again, there was only one bomb and stuff like that in that in the movie. But Prince was the sole one in the film, whereas there were three people. Though Prince was the guy who did assassinate him, there were two other people right. who threw the bombs or got caught and stuff. And for those who love the dramatic fighting style of the first two Kingsman movies, you will not be disappointed by this one. No. It's not, it doesn't feel overused, and it's it's really well done, I think. It doesn't hurt the story at all, and yeah. It, unlike, yeah. I feel like unlike the second one, they have a better villain with this one. And they actually... The other thing too is, is also the one last comment I wanted to make about the Archduke is also they had him have a press conference, which I'm pretty positive there was no press conference. Right. Like in between him, the bombs and the assassination. So that's the other inaccuracy. But the other thing I would say, the other positive about this film is because the director is known for his comedic intake on making fun of spy stuff, but this movie he toned down his violence, his comedy, even some of his language a little bit. And to actually make it more grounded and also more respectful of the history that took place. Right, yeah, that that I found really interesting. Because I've seen, uh, I'm, I've mainly seen the, the second Kingsman movie and portions of the first one. And it's, it, yeah, I think the comedy is, is, a, is sometimes a little much in, in that film. At least the second one. The first one maybe was better at it. Yeah, there's a, there a few parts that was like, really? But, yeah. It's, um... But yeah, no. If you guys want to find a fun movie that's a lot of inaccurate, very inaccurate, but very respectful for uh, depicting the World War, highly recommend the movie. It is a very well grounded film. So it's probably its inaccuracies, right. <laughs> comedic intake of it. But yeah, no. So that about covers our podcast episode today. Um, why? What are we going to talk about next time? Next time, uh, because it is February is Black History Month, we will be discussing uh, historical black figures mainly. Uh, Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, Martin Luther King Jr., Jackie Robinson. We'll discuss those. Will be the main four. We'll discuss others, of course. We'll give them mentions and discuss their significance in American history. But but those will be the main four, and we hope you tune in next time for that. And we hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Thank you, and and enjoy the podcast. If you have any comments, please let us know.